Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am very excited today to talk to Professor Chris Walker of the University of Michigan. Um, Chris was at Ohio State before he went to Michigan, which, by the way, does make me want to ask questions about college football, given that you are both an Ohio State and Michigan presence, but we'll, we'll leave that to the end, maybe. Um, Chris um, went to Brigham Young undergraduate, got a master's in public policy from Harvard, a JD from Stanford. He clerked for Judge Kaczynski and Justice Kennedy. Um, he has worked in both public and private practice at really the highest levels of litigation. And he is quite simply one of the leading administrative law scholars in the United States, and I might add, at a relatively young age. Chris, thanks for being on. Yeah, great to be here, Eric. Good to see you again. Yeah, I was reflecting. We met in 2011-ish, and I was reflecting, and you expressed an interest in administrative law, but I remember thinking um, that this morning, um, boy, has life changed since 2011. That's 12 years, and the administrative law world has changed dramatically. So let's get into it. How did you become interested in admin law, and why, is, why did you pick that as your scholarly you know, specialty? Not that you don't do other things, but that is your scholarly specialty. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was in high school, you know, I did student government and I always thought like whatever I did career wise, I'd find ways to serve in government at some point. I grew up in Vegas. So I thought maybe Nevada. I you grew know. up in Vegas. I didn't know that. I, I just often, yeah, I've yeah. gone to Vegas once a year for 35 you know, years. I might have thought, you know, maybe be governor of Nevada someday or something. <laughs> I don't know. As you, as you get older, you kind of realize, you know, you have to actually run for office. That's <laughs> not really my deal. And, <laughs> But I always loved government and how government works. Uh, and so I eventually went to law school thinking I'd work in government, go work in a federal agency for the rest of my life. And uh, and I found out you could teach. And so I kind of <laughs> get to do everything, which is like the perfect job. So I just, I love looking at how federal agencies work, how they interact with Congress and the president and courts. I kind of like to get into the regulatory trenches and not as much kind of the constitutional you know, the ivory tower that I think you'll want to talk about more today. But I, I'm one of those guys that likes to be at agencies, interview an agency officials, and just kind of figuring out how, how do things actually work on the ground? Well, a, a couple things about that. I worked at, in federal programs at DOJ for about four and a half years. My job was to defend federal agencies. And I, and, and I got lucky. I got involved in mostly constitutional law cases, but some other ones too. But I will say it was fascinating to see how our federal government works on the ground which is not how we think federal government works, I think, in, in textbooks. I, on my last podcast, I think I mentioned, I actually made a law once, like Siegel made a law with Michael Paulson, by the way. Um, we, both, we both made a law that eventually got struck down as unconstitutional, but then it got mooted on appeal. Anyway, um, no one voted for me, you know? So my separation of powers idea was blasted pretty quickly <laughs> when, I, when I was asked to make a law. Um, so, okay, I think there's two... Uh, there's, there's an infinite number of things going on right now in administrative law. But, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think the two major areas where we have to start anyway is with the Chevron Doctrine, what that is, why it's in jeopardy, what you think about it, and then the Major Questions Doctrine, what that is, what you think about it, and of course, one is on the way out and one is on the way in. So maybe we can start there. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, so I... I I think those are the, you know, at least when it comes to judicial review of, you know, statutory interpretation of the ministry lot, those are the really two big issues. And it's it's fascinating to see how they're crossing paths and yet not interacting. So mm -hmm. on the one hand, you have Chevron deference that was a doctrine crystallized in 1984. I say crystallized because some deference has always existed. Like this isn't new. 
1984, Justice Stevens wrote an opinion during the Reagan administration in Chevron versus NRDC, in which he said that courts kind of established a very formalist two-step approach that courts have, if a statute's ambiguous, then the agency ministers, um, courts have to defer to the agency's reasonable interpretation of that statute. So ambiguity, reasonableness, in other words, if a court thinks there's a better interpretation of the statute, that doesn't matter. It's got to defer. And this was like a, a Clean Air Act case where the Reagan administration was trying to make it a lot easier for industry to comply with the Clean Air Act. It was a very conservative, deregulatory case. And so for at least two decades, Chevron was a, a I, in my mind, a conservative doctrine to allow for presidents to, to kind of shift where regulation was going. Uh, and then the last two decades. Wait, wait, Chris, I'm sorry. I have to interrupt. I'm sorry. I, I got a little confused there. I apologize. Yeah, yeah, when you called Chevron a conservative doctrine, that confused me for a second. Because, because, because in my and by the way, on administrative law questions, I'm generally a layperson plus. <laughs> Usually, when we talk yeah. about Khan law on this podcast, I consider myself an expert. Not, not here. So some of these questions might be dumb. But it seems to me that Chevron was a the opposite of a conservative doctrine. It, it basically took judges out of second guessing legislative decisions, which I don't view as conservative. Do I, am I confused about this? Well, I think you're just defying conservative wrong. <laughs> okay, <laughs> fair enough. Okay. I'm an old school judicial conservative. I'm Burkean. I think judges should, you know, should defer to the political branches. Well, you and me both. I we... mean, so maybe we're using the same words to say the opposite. <laughs> but when I think of conservative, I think of it as allowing, you know, the political branches to play their role and judges to kind of play a much more modest role in, in our system. It's funny you so. say that, Chris. I'm sorry to interrupt again, but it's funny you say that because at the originalism conference in San Diego, which I go to three years out of four, a room of 50 originalists and three non-originalists. I usually say I'm the most originalist person there because exactly for what you just said, because the original idea was deference. The original idea was leave it to the political process, absent clear error. But that's a podcast for a different day. Sorry to interrupt. Keep going. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, so that's, so that's the idea. And so in the last decade and a half or so, you've seen that, you know, scholars on the right, libertarians and some conservatives, and judges start to really express a lot of concerns with Chevron. Um, uh, and so we have that kind of going on. And of course, the court granted certain case last year or earlier this year, Loper Bright, yeah. where they expressly are going to decide whether to overrule Chevron. And they added a second case, Relentless, which, by the way, I think is just the awesomest title. In fact, <laughs> I've got this little Pacific Legal Foundation, uh, which is one of the like big pushers to get rid of Chevron. I know created these these little way before relentless but it's so awesome we are relentless i mean if the case gets called relentless i hope when they actually uphold chevron they use relentless as the case caption instead of loper bright because i think chevron is relentless but um but yeah i mean so we have this case that's gonna be heard in january uh where the court's gonna decide whether to get rid of chevron do you have, uh, pred do you, do you have a prediction for that by, do you have a prediction for that by the way yeah, I mean, so one, they added the, so I think the court's not going to get rid of Chevron. Uh, I think, I think stare decisis, and I filed a brief on this, so I'm a little, bi a little biased, but I think the court's going to keep it. If they're going to add some more guardrails to it, like they did in a prior case with our deference to agencies, regulatory interpretations. Right. Justice Kagan wrote a, an opinion in a case called Kaiser v. Wilkie, where they were presented with a similar question, should we overrule this other deference doctrine? And she cobbled together five votes, but added like five steps. So, so I think we might see some additional steps on Chevron, and and it will make a difference in how lower courts 
apply the doctrine and how agencies and Congress, you know, react to it. But I don't think we're going to overrule it. Can, can I ask you a 50,000 foot question about Chevron um, that I'm really curious about? Um, so it, it seems to me, okay, so Congress passes a law and it authorizes the agency to do X. But what X, what the law is, is ambiguous and imprecise and X is ag- ambiguous and imprecise. The agency does the best it can. It goes through all the correct procedural hoops. I'm going to assume now whatever the notice and comment requirements were, they satisfied, all that stuff. Under what theory of life or political systems or judging should judges second guess the reasonable interpretations of ambiguous language by agencies who are supposed to be experts in the field? Yeah, I mean, so I think that, um, I mean, I'm not going to disagree with you on the general question. I do think, though, one of the reasons that some have tired on Chevron is that in the 1980s and 90s and even early 2000s, we thought of Chevron as like a tool of gradual change, you know, like from maybe a 10 degree shift in direction or a 30 degree. Some people might say Chevron itself is more like a 50 degree, whatever. I think what we're seeing, and we saw this with the start of the second Obama administration, and definitely all of Trump, and we're seeing it in Biden, is that administrative law is now a 90 degree change, or yeah. sometimes even a 180 degree change. Yeah. And I think at some point, you know, like, if you're a judge, you've been you've been a judge for, you know, 40 years, and you're looking at this, you're like, I was willing to give you, like, some flexibility, you know, like 30 degrees, which is still a pretty big change. Yes. But if you're coming to me and doing the 90 degree change, or you're actually like just rescinding a whole program that existed, you know, at some point, don't you got to go back to Congress? Like, you know, like, shouldn't change be more gradual? If that makes so. So I think that's part of like where I push back a little bit on this is that at some point it doesn't feel like law anymore or, or governing if you have an agency. And really, we're not even talking about an agency. We have those big changes. We're talking about a president, right? Uh, when you have a president come in and say, cancel all student loans or build a wall, a border wall without any statutory authorization or agencies find any way to create a nationwide vaccine mandate, find any old statute you can find that might be able to do this. And I give lots of more examples, right? DACA and DAPA is another one, you know, first term of the Obama administration. Oh, we can't do this. Second term, oh, Congress won't let us do it. So we're going to do it anyway. Right. So I think you have that kind of reaction. And I don't think it's unreasonable for a judge to sit there and be like, you know, I like Chevron. I like deference when I felt like agencies were expert, exercising expertise. They were responding to change circumstances. I don't like deference when it feels like presidents are just using old statutes to do really radically new things, which of course does lead us to the major question of the doctrine in a second, right? So, so, yeah, so but, pause, but I think so, that's so, kind of one way to frame yeah, it. So yeah. pause on that for one. So that's, that's fascinating stuff. I was reading some of your work this week, and um, one of the things you really articulate as clearly as I've seen it articulated in my reading, is the temporal problem. You talk about the temporal problem that Congress might pass a law in 1943 and the agency is interpreting that law in, 19, in 2023 in a whole different world um, and whole different, everything is different. Does that make any sense as a lawmaking structure kind of? Um, but my, but I, I, whatever the answer, I, and I'm going to defer to you on, on the answers to that problem, but whatever the answer to that dilemma is, it strikes me that the Congress and the executive branch can protect themselves. And I'm not sure why we need courts to play a heavier hand than they have. 
if the new Congress doesn't like what the executive branch is doing, it has, as you point out in some of your work, all kinds of tools to rein in that runaway agency. Um, I don't, maybe this is devil's advocate argument for you, um, but why do we need judges for this? Yeah, it's a, it's a, I mean, I think at some point, you know, there needs to be some guardrails in place. I mean, in some ways, I think we're arguing against shut at the margins because I think on the bottom line, you probably agree on, yeah. on a one limited role of courts. Yeah. But I, I, but I do, you know, when my more kind of progressive colleagues bring this up, they're like, why, why like create like a congressional review act for the, for the major questions doctors? So why like, why allow courts to do stuff? And, you know, my answer is, you know, look what happened. They assume the worst president you can possibly have in office. <laughs> and you give them four years, you know, to do what they want to do. And do you really want to live in a world like that when, when Congress is so polarized and dysfunctional and isn't going to, Congress can still push back, don't get me wrong, oversight appropriations. Um, but, but maybe that this isn't the system that was originally designed where we have that. And so, so your worst nightmare president is what? What, the, what administrative law is here for is to put some guardrails on that, that. That's fascinating. That's a great answer, I think, Chris. That's that's thoughtful. Um, I, I guess first of all, we've already had the worst president. I can imagine. I only hope we don't have him again. You don't have to. You don't have to respond to that. But that's my my <laughs> view on that. Um, all right. So so why don't we go from Chevron, which as you which may or may not survive January or June of next year. I actually think they're probably either going to they're either going to reverse it outright or they're going to recharacterize it in a way which is an effective reversal. We'll, we'll see. Um, let's move from that to me. I had one thing on that. Yeah, um, yeah. Real quick on that. Um, yeah. So when they added relentless to the docket, yeah. um, you know, the second case, it's exact same case. Yeah. Just a different circuit, circuit so that Justice Jackson could have participated. Yeah. I feel like a, a deeper, I don't want to call it, I don't know if conspiracy theory is the right, you <laughs> know. I, I think that Chief Justice Roberts and Kagan are probably thinking, if we want to go the route of Kaiser and keep Chevron, but like put some guardrails, yeah. we might need Jackson's vote on this. Uh, and so I, I think it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, what we see happening requires J Justice Jackson's vote. So. so Chris, if you don't mind, you just raised a really, really interesting issue that we have discussed on this podcast many times. So I just want to mention this real quick. The, the assumption of that argument you just made, which may very well be right, is Kagan and Roberts are kind of implicitly, if nothing else, working together to cobble together some kind. I got to tell you, Chris, um, from the constitutional law world, um, it is now well accepted among those of us who hobnob that Kagan tried that really hard. She did everything she could in separation of powers cases, other cases. You know, she accepted seal of law later, even though she disagreed with it completely, whatever. Um, it didn't work. I would be, you know, Rucho, uh, I would be shocked if, if Kagan and, and Roberts were still have that kind of relationship, but maybe they do, and I could be wrong about that. The main point I want to make for the lay audience listening is those relationships are important. They are. And, and cases have been won and lost in the Supreme Court. I've seen Justice Brennan's files based on relationships. Um, so what you said was interesting. I, I, I kind of hope you're right. Well, I, mean, I could just say, like, having clerk there, yeah. you know, Kagan wasn't there. I mean, I don't mean to be, I don't, I did not mean to suggest that, like, there's some special exclusive relationship no, I between know. Kagan I know. and yeah. Roberts. I mean, I think all the justices are in this together. And a lot of them, especially the more centrist ones that can strike deals, are constantly talking with each other uh, about how to chart a path forward uh, that will 
garner a more a larger majority of the court you know and it breaks down and obviously the last few years it's broken down in ways you know very you know it, it, ideological lines have been drawn but i mean there's absolutely no way justice kagan isn't trying uh to create coalitions to help the court move forward in a way that that, that is, you know, that, that it is more aligned with her vision. I mean, if I, if, what, what, but I, but I definitely didn't mean to suggest that, like Roberts and Kagan. No, I know, I know. At, like I know. some restaurant. I, I'm sorry if you I, know, like, I, I don't. It's, it's no, no, but no, but I think it is. But, but yeah, of course. I mean, you see similar gestures toward Justice Barrett. You see similar, you know, Kavanaugh. You know, like, that's just the way when you have nine people that are living in. You know, it's like the real world from MTV, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> you got nine people living in a house together. They're going to try to get along to the extent they can. So Yeah, I, I after affirmative action, guns and abortion have been completely, the, I'm not, for better or for worse, the law of all three areas, Kagan did not get any of her compromises. Um, I'm not sure how much of a mood she's in for this, but then again, she's really good at what she does. Hey, Chris, you clerked for Justice Kennedy in 2010 or 11, something around there, I believe. Um, did they communicate orally or by memo when you were clerking most of the time? Um, yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that Justice Kagan probably put it best on her road shows that they use clerks a lot to communicate back in yeah. the day. And I would think that's probably still, yeah. I thought that was kind of weird when I was there. I'm like, like you all are like, you eat lunch together. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Why are you playing this telephone game between clerks? And now that I'm a little bit more mature, you know, a few more years down the road, I, I completely get it. It's about preserving the relationship. And by using clerks, you you create a level of kind of distance uh, yeah. on negotiations and wins that I think are really important. But yeah, I mean, I, the memos obviously memos always at least when I was there they, they play a role, of course. Yeah. But if you really want to get a deal done, you're not going to put it in a memo. You know, you're that's, gonna that's fascinating. You're gonna do it that, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's course. fascinating. Um, at this podcast, I am constitutionally required by originalism to mention Judge Posner at least once. And, and I will say that Posner and I had long, long talks about the role collegiality plays on multi-member institutions in general, and it was fascinating. And I think you are right. I think communicating indirectly sometimes is a more effective way of preserving a positive relationship than communicating directly, which is fascinating. All right, let's go back. Sorry for that. Sorry for all that digression. Um, you said, I think, at the end of our Chevron discussion, that kind of leads us to the major questions, Doctor. Now, this is the one that as a layperson plus on administrative law really troubles me. So why don't you tell us what the major questions doctrine is, when it started, how important is it, do you agree with it, and what's going to happen in the future? Yeah, I mean, so the major questions doctrine, uh, originally, you know, if we're thinking like, go back to like Justice O'Connor, actually, Justice O'Connor and, and Brown, Brown and Williamson, uh, Brown and Williamson, yeah. I always get the name of that case from, the tobacco case. Yeah. You know, I think that's where you first really see it pop up. And it was very different than what we're talking about today. Then she was looking at a statute saying, does the FDA have the authority to regulate tobacco? Well, they have the authority to regulate drugs. So drugs are defined very broadly to include anything that harms you. So, of course, like as a textualist, you'd say they have the authority to regulate tobacco. And at the same time, as a realist or anyone who understands anything that Congress has done over the years would say, there is no way Congress gave the authority of the FDA <laughs> to regulate tobacco. There's no way. Right. I mean, tobacco industry captured Congress. Like, you know, this is not something that. Okay, so Justice O'Connor, again, a classic Justice O'Connor opinion that has so many different factors. She doesn't say which factor actually is deciding. I mean, this is. I love Justice O'Connor, by the way. I mean, let's just pause and say, like, 
she was a humble minimalist judge. She obviously had flaws. We probably would disagree on which decisions are lots. But but I love kind of her case by case. Well, well, let me just say, yeah. Chris, I, I just wrote a blog post on Saturday called The Justice of Compromise. And I was very, very harsh on Justice O'Connor earlier in my career. To my chagrin, Linda Greenhouse quoted me in her biography, her, excuse me, obituary on Friday of Justice, the day she died. Um, didn't want that, didn't like that. She didn't, didn't ask me. I didn't, I'm never critical of someone the day they pass. That's absurd. Uh, or even the week afterwards. Um, so I wrote a piece on Saturday and I pretty much confessed to error that I was wrong about Justice O'Connor, that I think she realized the court wasn't a court before I realized the court wasn't a court. And she, then she, I mean, she wouldn't, <laughs> she would not agree. She would not have agreed with that characterization, but the way she decided cases, as you just described one day that we should take a minute to talk about Justice O'Connor because she was so important. And we got to, this is my first podcast since she passed away. Um, um, a remarkable woman in every respect. Um, and I used to think a remarkable woman, but a terrible justice. Now I think a remarkable woman and maybe a much smarter justice than I, not smarter, but she had it right more than I thought. That, that a one day at a time approach for this institution in most cases might be the way to go, given everything. That's, that's a thing. I'm glad you brought Justice O'Connor up. Anyway, all right, going back to major questions. So she, she hinted at it then, but then what happened? Yeah, I mean, and in that case, you know, it wasn't about, it was about, should we defer to the agency like, claim that it had the authority to regulate? And she said, among uh, among other reasons, one of the reasons we shouldn't is that the agency is claiming to be able to regulate the issue of significant economic and political, you know, significance. And, and like, Congress hadn't authorized that. Like, we would expect more from Congress yeah. if this were going to happen. And then you see a number of different cases. Most of them I would frame more as should Chevron deference apply or not? Like King v. Burwell is the other kind of obvious example. Don't get me Jesus started on Robert King v. Burwell. Your friend Jonathan Adler and I went at it for about a year and a half on that case. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. And, and so there again says, you know, no Chevron. Yeah. The new version of the Major Questions Doctrine, which you saw in, uh, in three cases two terms ago, isn't just about Chevron anymore. It's about does the agency have the ability to regulate at all? So in other words, the question is, you know, in the normal cases, you look at the, you just give the, the interpretation, the statute, it's like ordinary interpretation. Uh, but if it raises a question of great political or economic significance, uh, a major policy question, the way you think about it, then the court's going to ask, did Congress clearly authorize this? So think of when um, the CDC tried to do an eviction moratorium. Right. The court said, no, like... That's a huge power. We don't think Congress gave that to the agency. Uh, if they went meant to give to the agency, they would have done it much more clearly. Chris, can we talk about that case? Um, Hold on. Yeah. Can we talk? Can we? Can I interrupt you to talk about that case? So there yeah. was a statutory provision in that case giving the agency the power to act in emergencies. There was. I mean, it said CDC can act. I don't remember the exact language. You probably do. COVID was an emergency. Um, my problem with that case and how you just characterized it is again from 50,000 feet. All right, we can't anticipate emergencies and pandemics. We just can't, you know, we're not smart enough. You and I aren't smart enough, much less Congress <laughs> to predict when these things are gonna happen. So they give emergency power to an agency. As long as that power is not used in a way that A, violates like a constitutional provision or another statutory provision. And as long as it's a reasonable response to an emergency, which the moratorium thing was, I think, a reasonable response to an emergency, why? I don't understand the rationale. Like what? 
Congress can't do this. We can't have them. They don't have the, could they have studied the problem and really decide, you know what, a moratorium is good. No, a moratorium is bad. How would they even go about debating that? I mean, it'd be really hard. What am I missing here? I mean, there was legislation introduced that didn't go anywhere um, on the moratorium. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess it's just, I, I think when it comes to like deference to agencies and administrative law, there are like two very divergent views with emergencies. You know, on the one hand, some you're articulating the view is when there's an emergency, like we really should allow agencies to respond more quickly. I think there's a, a very compelling contrary view, and actually I don't have a strong opinion on this either way, that when there's an emergency, that's when we need courts the most because that's when government's going to, you know, never let a crisis go to waste, right? <laughs> or, or, or more charitably, agencies, government overreacts when there's an emergency and we end up with, you know, with abuses of civil rights and other things. Obviously, that's not the moratorium, although my guess is that you're representing landlords. Uh, you might have a different view on that. Uh, but I do think that's kind of one of the kind of critical things is in an emergency, do you think agencies should get more deference and more power? Or do you think actually courts should play a more searching role to make sure that they're not trampling over 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 individual rights? So obviously the classic example would be Korematsu, right? Yeah. Um I don't think you would say at some point there's lines. <laughs> but, well, but, but Korematsu but, you know, raised a, the, but but Korematsu raised a, a very different issue. As a constitutional yeah. matter, does the federal government as a whole have the authority to um basically imprison American That's right. That, that's not that's not the issue in this case. The issue in this case is there is a there's, there's no question there's an emergency. Like the steel seizure case, the way I teach that case is the justices didn't believe there was an emergency. If they did, they would have come out differently because they weren't going to jeopardize our troops in Korea. Yeah. Here the same thing. I mean, there, but here there was an actual emergency. I don't. The idea of judges second guessing reasonable responses. Now we can disagree on what a reasonable response is. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, Keep I don't going. know. I mean, the way, but the way that rolled out, I mean, you remember, like, Kavanaugh, the first was like, all right, we'll let it go another month. I mean, at some point, at some point, I mean, I actually think they were questioning the emergency. You know, at some point, yeah. uh, this eviction moratorium has to end, right? Like, yeah. like COVID, it was a very long emergency. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> okay. But you had a similar one, you know, with uh, the nationwide vaccine management. Yes. Test and vaccine mandate for large employers by OSHA. Yeah. Uh, those were kind of the two big cases. And of course, you had West Virginia versus EPA, uh, the Obama era clean power plant. So those were kind of the three from that term. Yeah. Where eventually in West Virginia versus EPA, you get Chief Justice Roberts to actually articulate some sort of test for the court on what the standard. Means. I think standard. And, you know, I think standard, not test. Well, I mean, I see two steps. Uh, <laughs> I didn't say rule. I, I see two steps that are very mushy. Oh, is it major and is there clear authorization? Uh, I think Gorsuch wanted a more a more rule like formalist approach, and uh, Roberts wasn't didn't seem to be willing to go along with that. Uh, and that kind of gets to the question of like, what is this? Is yeah. it completely made up? Um, I, I think somewhat. I mean, I'm a textualist that doesn't really like substantive canons, and so I have a hard time squaring it with statutory interpretation. Uh, I don't. I don't think it's it's not the non delegation doctrine. Maybe we'll talk about that more. It's it's different. I think it's motivated by non-delegation concerns, although I think the Chief Justice, in his opinion, West Virginia University EPA, very carefully called it separation of powers concerns and not non-delegation, because I think he was trying to get at something bigger. 
On the flip side, as a policy matter, do I think some version of the major question doctrine makes sense? Absolutely. Uh, I, I don't. I don't like the idea of presidents. I like Dan Farber's take on this. That I don't. I, I think that the major questions doctrine raids in presidents uh, that are trying to abuse stretch statues to do things that they're not supposed to be used so, to do. So, so, so I, when I've had when I've had libertarians on this podcast, folks like Ilya Soman, Randy Barnett, other people like that, Chris, I, I always ask them this question, which is directly responsive to what you just said. You said the major questions doctrine is important to rein in president, you know, runaway presidents, and Lord knows, I think both sides would agree. Or probably we've had runaway presidents. I, mean, I don't think Biden is one, but I understand conservatives do. Certainly, Trump was a runaway and will be a runaway president elected again. My question is this: I don't understand. I just said this to Ilya two weeks ago at George at George Mason Law at a debate we were having. The federal federal judges are paid by federal tax dollars. They work for the federal government. They are government officials. Their orders are coercive. Now, they need the executive branch to enforce them, but the orders are coercive. Why, why don't libertarians see courts as a threat? I don't understand. Or why, why don't we, as a whole, view courts as, the, as, as a threat to, if you're a true blue libertarian, it's still government officials making coercive decisions. I don't really understand it. Yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not, I have some libertarian instinct. But I'm not a libertarian. <laughs> it's not going to be too helpful. There. I mean, I do think it's about. I think it's, it goes back to that idea of separation of powers. Mm -hmm. um, that that if if you're a libertarian, or quite frankly, if you just care about liberty more generally, um, you get more concerned when one actor, when government actor, both can legislate, can exec execute the law, and judge the law, and that our world is a lot better when you have. Horizontal separation of powers among different branches, different government actors, and vertical separation of powers among different levels of governments, local, state, federal. I think you're in a much better position uh, in in, the, in that situation. So I don't think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, maybe you don't like judges as much uh, <laughs> well, as some others do. But it, I, I think they have a, a very important role playing the kind of combating the other two branches of government. One more minor pushback on that, and then we'll move on. Because um, you, you, you actually have a nice solution to this, which I actually want to talk about, and we'll get that in a second. But um, again, from 35,000 feet perspective, when you say separation of powers, um, your colleagues, Julian Mortensen and Nick Bagley, in a 100-plus page law review opus, have convinced me, and I've read the responses, they don't convince me, that there's nothing original about this. I don't want to get into that with you. I, I know that's not your particular specialty. We can, I mean, we can if you want, but they've convinced me that there is no, your colleagues, that they have no, there's no, there's no persuasive originalist argument for this kind of searching judicial review. Um, and you add to that, what you're basically saying is you want the fifth vote of a nine court judge, court most of the time, or maybe a sixth vote in this world. Those two people, whoever they happen to be, in your day it was Justice Kennedy, you know, today it's Justice Barrett or Roberts, depending on what case it is, or, or Kavanaugh. But whatever it is, you trust them over an entire government bureaucracy. <laughs> and I'm meaning the Congress that passed the law and the agency that's, that's implementing the law, plus the fact that Congress can theoretically reverse anything an agency does. They can. Yeah, I, mean, I do think the major questions doctrine, though, is it, it frames it differently. Uh, it, it frames it more as agency or president, you're trying to do this. We don't think Congress wanted you to do this. I mean, it's a more of a purpose than 
Which, by the way, I love. We're all my purpose as friends, man. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but some version of the major question doctrine should be like their crowning achievement, right? Yes. Like, this is this is it. Uh, you know, and they're saying, you know, we're going to side with Congress here. Now, if they get it wrong, they really get it wrong. And that's one of my points I made in my kind of work is when a court guesses what the original Congress wanted wrong and they don't allow the agency to regulate, they really are trampling over what the other two branches. And those are the political branches that should get more deference. That's my point. Anyway. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, but on the flip side, if they get it right, then they are respecting not just their own role, but the role of Congress in it. So I think that's kind of what where we're getting at. Before we get to your kind of, um, let's do it right now, actually. So, so if the court ends up really adopting a strong version of the major questions doctrine, um, your Harvard, I think it's Journal of Law and Public Policy piece, talks about um, a congr the Congressional Review Act. Describe that and how that could help solve this 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 problem and then yeah, uh, and, and mean, then so, and then Chris sorry and then after that we'll get to the Jarcy case from last week. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I if we if we go back to Chevron, Chevron, I said it's a conservative doctrine, but it's really actually value neutral uh, in the sense of it allows for both more regulation and for deregulation, and so it has a symmetry that I think all at least all administrative law scholars be like, fine, I'm I'm happy with those rules of the road, like, yeah, because the president come in and do changes. The major questions doctrine, I think my colleagues Leah Lehman and Dan, and Dan Deacon put it probably best in their article that just came out of the Virginia Law Review, is it has a deregulatory bent. I mean, I can't think of many instances where it would be applied to allow for, to require regulation. Right. You know, it's got to be applied to deregulate. Now, that doesn't mean it's necessarily entirely asymmetric on the politics. I mean, it could apply to immigration, it might apply, but the reality is most regulation is, is progressive or liberal, right? Uh, and, and so if the goal is, is the, as Justice Gorsuch says in his concurrence, is to like empower Congress to make those major value judgments, uh, I, one, I've taken him at his word, but two, that is my goal. Like, I do think I would like Congress to make the major value judgments. Um, it's completely unrealistic in this Congress with a filibuster and with all the other rules about the House and the Senate that slow the process down, that they're going to have the where, you know the willpower to the, be able to make those judgments. And so I kind of looked at it and said, all right, well, how do we make it easier? It turns out there are a number of different tools Congress uses to make it easy to make decisions. I mean, the one that we see a lot now is reconciliation. You know, the Republicans use that to do their major tax right, bill. Right. The Democrats use that to do the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, you know, that doesn't require the filibuster because, it, you know, there are a bunch of rules about why it's, you know, we don't even get into it. It's sub rules, like made up rules to sub rules. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Others are to ratify treaties or to review war powers declarations and things like that. And the one that I used in my paper is the Congressional Review Act because that's a tool in administrative law. It's a weird one. I mean, it was used a lot during the Trump administration, but it hadn't really been used before the Trump administration. And this, this tool is there to check. Presidents on their way out the door, like ramming through a bunch of midnight regulations that the new president wouldn't want. Uh, and it gets rid of the filibuster and all of the other types of rules that slow things down. It says that regulation has to be sent to Congress and Congress can give it up down vote. Well, you know, Chris, I, I was, I was hold on. I was really confused by that. And this is my ignorance. Yeah. When you say an up down vote, but that still has to go back to the president. Yes. Okay. I want to be clear. Others have violated Chata, which, by the way, I think Chata's wrong, but leaving that aside, um, it has to go back to the president. What if he vetoes it? 
then it goes through the normal. You'd have to have a, a, a two thirds vote. So, so the Congressional Review Act really only works when you have a change of presidential administration. Yeah, and the new president controls both houses of Congress. Usually, I say that. I mean, you can imagine when the house is really close, you've got a bunch of purple, sure, you know, members that. Uh, the other word, way it's being used lately, though, I'll just as an aside. Are independent agencies. That's the other fun one. It's like you might have an independent agency. Like net neutrality was kind of up and down in the Trump administration along those lines. Right. But so this tool is there. And so I kind of say, well, why don't we just take that tool off the shelf and apply it to the major questions doctrine? Whenever a court invalidates a statute, uh, an agency regulation or you know, agency action based on anything that seems like a major question, um, that triggers the a Congressional Review Act type approach. And if both houses of Congress and the president pass a resolution that declares, you know, that declare that that basically blesses the agency rule, then the agency rule can go into effect, uh, and it amends the substantive statute, just like the Congressional Review Act does, to allow for the agency to regulate in that that way or substantially similar ways going forward. So, Chris, can I ask um, you? And we'll see. I mean, it's getting some traction on the Hill. I mean, some Republicans no, I and think Democrats it's fascinating. are. Yeah. Can I ask you a question about it? it, though? Yeah. That proposal, we don't, I mean, they could, I guess the, the, the unique contribution of all that is we get around the filibuster because Congress could do this tomorrow anyway without that. I mean, Congress can always just meet, pass a law, and say what the agency did was right or wrong. I mean, you're suggesting this, the, 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 the your, your solution here takes the filibuster out of play, which is, of course, essential for the system to work. Is that right? Yeah, and it does more than that. It, it makes it so that you can pull it out of committee. I mean, it, 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 okay. it streamlines a lot of the... It, 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 yeah, so it's not just... I mean, I mean, one answer would be just get rid of the filibuster. Yes. It, and that actually wouldn't be as powerful as here. It's also not remotely politically feasible. Or is this way we might actually be able to get to 60 votes? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Um, um, I, but, yeah. I, but I do think it kind of puts to test, you know, those that are in favor of the major questions doctrine. Are you really in favor of the major questions doctrine because you just don't want the federal government to do anything, you know, the kind of strong libertarian? Or is it because you want Congress to make major value judgments? As a policy matter, I'm in that latter camp. I, I, want, Paul, I want Congress to make the major value judgments. Uh, and so I, I see it as a way to kind of, kind of Take power away from the court and give it back to, back to Congress. I feel like I do want to share the opinion, which you can react to or not, that I do think among many people with a lot of money who try to influence this area of the law, um, the ultimate end game here is to really hamstring the administrative state and then hamstring Congress. I think I don't think there are that many. I suspect, Chris, that there are a lot of folks out there who won't be satisfied with limiting the administrative state. They want to limit the national government's reach. And that, if that is the ultimate goal here, which would require reworking the Commerce Clause jurisprudence of the court. But we know that Thomas already wants to do that. How many others, we don't know. But that's my view. You, do, you want to set an opinion on that? I'm happy to be with Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a group that believes that. I think there are others that, that, that that do see want to see Congress play its role, and uh, one of the fun things about this legislative proposal, if it does get any legs, which probably will, you know, members of Congress will go on the record right. <laughs> what they really want. Right, right. Well, that's all we. I mean, that fun Article One project that Senator Lee started during the Biden administration. You know, let's make Congress great again. Yes. For the slug, you know, um, we'll see whether they actually believe that or not. Well, you mentioned uh, Senator Lee, and and to be clear, I cannot over the last three weeks. 
It's been about three weeks, maybe a month. Senator Lee, I, I'm sorry, Chris, I just have to say this, has gone crazy on Twitter and is tweeting like 17 times a day. And he, believe me, he no longer wants to make Congress great. He just wants no law. I don't know what he wants. It's very strange. He's, he's, he's really, he's, <laughs> his, he's another person. There are many liberals like this too, who Twitter broke. <laughs> I think Twitter broke Senator Lee, but we'll, we'll, we'll save that for another time. Um, <laughs> la last week, the court heard a very complicated case. Um, I, you know, I blog at Dorf on Law. Mike wrote about it. I wrote about it. But it's really hard to make accessible kind of to non-lawyers, except for one part of it. So can we talk, if you don't mind, I'd like to talk about the Jarsky case, but only one, there's three big issues. Only one of the issues. And I don't know if this is your expertise or not. Um, unfortunately, it's mine because I, I teach federal courts. And in teaching federal courts, I had to deal with bankruptcy courts. And in dealing with bankruptcy courts, I had to deal with this idea that people are entitled to an Article III court. And for the non-lawyers listening, that means life tenure, salary protection, you know, um, when they get hit with a monetary judgment in a civil case, the Constitution says in the Seventh Amendment that the, all suits of common law for more than $20, you get a jury trial. To make a long story short, when Congress regulates and creates new rights and, and, and limits, the court has inconsistently treated that as something called a public right for which a jury trial is not required. Going to the case last week, the SEC fined somebody, I think a million dollars between actual damages and other stuff. Anyway, and he's claiming the federal government cannot fine me a million dollars or my company a million dollars without giving me a jury trial. Because the Seventh Amendment says for all civil cases, that were present a common law, $20 more. And the answer is, this wasn't a common law case. But that answer even gives me some blues, because a million dollars at stake here. Shouldn't he get a, a jury trial when a million dollars is at stake? I don't know. Is this something you're interested in? Yeah, it is. I mean, it is. I mean, I've, I've written on all three of the issues. Yeah. Uh, and, and this one, you know, this is the one the court spent two yes. and a half hours on. Yes. The, the easiest question, they didn't even ask a question. So, like, the third question about should there be dual-day removal from administrative law judges, yeah. I think that's the easiest way to resolve this case in favor of Jarkissi, the you know, the challenger. Well, he's actually the respondent because the Fifth Circuit's the Fifth Circuit, and they yeah, declared it unconstitutional in three yeah. different ways, right? Um, but that was actually, the, in my mind, the easiest case, question. And so it was fascinating to me to see them not even – Talk about the other two. So, Chris, questions. you went through that very quickly. And just, just, Chris, you yeah. just back up a second. There's an issue in the case about whether these administrative um, law judges can be fired by the president in the correct way, and that's a very complicated yeah. issue. But the court didn't really talk about that. The argument, as you said, the court talked about this other issue. Not at all. And there was like one like passing reference to the second question, like the non-delegation yes. one, which it's the most dangerous question, but also the stupidest. I mean, yes. it's like not. Yeah. I guess really not a, it's, in my mind, it was, if you go look back at the briefing, the Fifth Circuit kind of just made it up. Right. It wasn't even in the briefing. I'm right. worried about there. But the question that the court's going to decide, you yeah. mentioned that, I think it's right to focus on it is, does the Seventh Amendment jury trial right apply to a civil penalty that's imposed by the SEC? And, you know, I have to say, this is one where I have not read all the literature, although there isn't much literature right. out there, you know. Right. I mean, there, there is a lot on the obviously on bankruptcy courts and on you know. Like, you're right. I mean, like in federal courts, you read about five or six cases. Yes. On that, but like the but that was about whether an Article Three court was required, not as much about whether a civil jury was required. 
And most of us thought before oral argument, those are the same question. That they, you know, it, but I thought the court thought this was a little bit different. Uh, that, that even if an Article Three court isn't required, maybe a jury is required. And it got really confusing to me. I, I think there are there's a majority of the court that is, I think, going to recognize a civil jury trial right here. I think they're going to limit it to the facts of this case. I mean, this SEC civil penalty was introduced in Dodd-Frank. It didn't exist before. It is different than, like, there's a famous case called Atlas Roofing where there's that's, a civil That's where they spend most of their time in the on that case. Yeah, in the OSHA context where there it was like, if OSHA comes and evaluates your workplace and they find out that you, you have violations, they can impose civil penalties. That doesn't strike me as much as a common law. It feels different. Yeah, I agree. Than a, I if agree. you commit fraud in the market, the SEC can come after you. I don't, it does feel different. Is it different enough to make a difference? I don't know. Like, I'm not a constitutional law. Yeah. I'm not, I don't, I'm not, I'm not a historian. I'm a constitutional law person. But I, but I, I do think there are, are five votes uh, for that. And, you know, one of the things I struggle with is, is it like really, I don't know how to say it right. Like, why not a jury? <laughs> you know right, I mean? right. Like, as a matter right. of like common, like if no, you I'm with you. person on the street, I'm with. It's like you know, like, and, and and tell me, agency, why do you think it's better for the world to have this adjudication? And I, you know, there are some fair answers. Like, on, agency could say, well, it's faster. We have expert folks, administrative law judges that can deal with these. And it won't cost us as much money. And, and there's review and there is review in Article Three courts. Yeah, and like you know, and so like we can do more of them basically. Like if we have to go to court every time, we're gonna we're gonna have to be more selective on who we go after because it's more resource intensive. But I think there's something to the argument of like, wait a minute, so your own employee is going to be opposing me? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. No, I agree. SEC LJ, which by the way, I've interviewed. Almost all of the SEC LJs used to be five. I think there's only three now. Yeah. They are like the most professional expert people you know. Yeah. But they do still work for the agency. Sure. I don't know. I, I will say on the flip side, and Noah Rosenblum tweeted this out, and I, I think I retweeted it, is this fight is over civil penalties, but there's no dispute that the agency can strip a company of its, or, or an agent of its ability to even participate in the market. Right. 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 And so it's kind of a weird, like, we care about $700,000, but we don't care about the fact that the agency can just completely right. so, take you out of the market. Well, I mean, so Chris, it's kind of a weird, weird dynamic. That last point, that, that was great the way you described that. And the last point feeds into something I wanted to say, and I apologize, this may take like three minutes, but I want the audience to listen to this. I don't know what the court's going to do. I think I agree with you. They're going to find a way to give a jury trial here or something. But people need to understand how messed up this area of the law is. And, and people who don't teach both Fed courts and con law it is so messed up. I'll just give a very quick example. So the Constitution, and you know all this, but the Constitution allows Congress to create a system of bankruptcy. So Congress creates bankruptcy courts, and it's supposed to be uniform throughout the country. The current law, I'm not going to go through all the machinations, but one aspect of the current law is this, and this is how stupid it is. A um, bankrupt, a debtor's claim against the bankrupt is part of the bankruptcy proceeding. And if it's a state law claim with no diversity, state law claim, breach of contract, no diversity, it can still be tried in the Article I bankruptcy court. That's the law today. That's how bankruptcy works. Without that, bankruptcy wouldn't work. You know, the debtors in one place, all the claims go. If the creditor files a compulsory counterclaim under state law, 
against the creditor who's coming after him, saying, no, I didn't breach the contract, you breached the contract, and you owe me money. That has to go to an Article III court. <laughs> and that's insane. They're, they're, I mean, they're both state law claims. There's no constitutional, there's no possible constitutional difference between those two things. I'm nervous the court is going to do something like that. And you just pointed it out. The idea that you get a jury trial if you find, uh, forget a million dollars, a hundred thousand dollars, but you don't get a jury trial if they try to take away your entire business by saying you can't operate, makes no sense in the real world, does it? I mean, I don't think so. So I don't, I don't have a lot of optimism for this. Do you think I, is that a fair, <laughs> fair posture for me to take? I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I would shift gears a bit on yeah. this, and like, it's a recurring theme in my scholarship. But so David Zare and I have a new art essay coming out on this, and uh, and we 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 argue that that this could be fixed by the SEC tomorrow. Um, the SEC could pass a regulation, a procedural rule, doesn't have to go through notice comment rulemaking. Where it says that a regulated entity, if we're going to impose a civil penalty, we're going to give them notice, mm -hmm. which we have to do anyways. We do. Yeah. And if they, within 20 or 30 days, say we want to be a federal court, we'll, we'll, we'll go file file our civil enforcement penalty, you know, civil penalty action in federal court. And we'll right. give them the right to remove the case to federal court in essence. Uh, and that solves all the constitutional problems here. Um David and I argue that I think I think we're right, although history will tell us if we're right, yeah. you know, like <laughs> I think a lot of businesses are going to choose agency adjudication over federal court. Yeah, well, uh, commodities works they, that way. Uh, commodities works that way. Because they're, they're repeat players. I mean, I think a lot of individuals like Jarkis are going to want federal court, which, great. Like, yeah. let them, but, but, I, but I think this allows, and it also encouraged the SEC to have better agency adjudication. to make Agreed. To compete with the federal court. We so agree. So we, we say the SEC, SEC should do this tomorrow. We say, you know, Congress should pass a statute. Congress is going to pass a statute, right? Or maybe, and this is where I'm a little bit squeamish, the court could actually recognize this as the remedy if they wanted to in this case. And you mean just make up a right? You mean just make up make up an option to go to federal court? Yeah, whatever. They well, make it all I up mean, anyway. So, <laughs> they, I mean, United States Arthrex, they did something very yes. similar. Yes, they did. The statute said no agency had to review. You are right. Chief Justice Roberts says agency had to review. <laughs> you're you're right. You're right. Why not? So that's kind of our pitch we have out there, and we'll see how it okay. see how it plays out. Um, we're running out of time, Chris. I have two more questions for you. So you have a book coming out, I think, uh, you're working on, called Construing Bureaucracy Beyond Judicial Review. Any title of any book ever, any place in the world that says Beyond Judicial Review, I'm interested in because I'm the guy who wants to end most judicial review. Um, so I'm interested, but, but in, a, in two minutes, what's, what is your general thesis of this book and what are you trying to accomplish? Yeah, I mean, so it's a, it's a chance to kind of pause and just say, you know, administrative laws of field just fixates way too much on courts. Uh, yeah. We view courts as like the solution to everything or the problem to everything. And the reality is the vast majority of agency actions never make it to court, uh, whether it's adjudications, or deference under rulemaking or enforcement decisions or so I kind of in the book walk through all the ways that regulatory actions that what agencies do never make it to court uh, and then say what we should do about it you know what Congress should do differently what courts should do dif differently what agencies and presidents should do differently uh, and it's just an idea of trying to encourage us to think beyond courts uh, and realize that that you know courts aren't going to save us from the administrative state but courts aren't also going to destroy the administrative state because there are lots of ways for for Congress and the president and agencies to kind of interact with that. Again, I'm not saying courts aren't important. Of course they're important. I mean, they play 
a really big role for good and bad in the administering state. But but it's just such a mistake for us to focus just just on courts. So that's kind of the, the I love pitch it for the book. I, and you I kind love of see it. that in our discussions throughout, right? Like, yeah. My yeah. view of courts is very different than some others. Yeah. Um and, and Cambridge is publishing it. Are you working with Mac Alloway? Yep, yep, yep. Matt is awesome. Uh, so yeah, that, they, awesome. Matt, I, I work with Matt on Originalism's Faith, and uh, I'd hope to get it out by the end of this year. But you know, the Supreme Court keeps on taking these cases. Yes. you know that I I've don't envy you. On already, I'm like, so I have spent too much time writing shorter essays in response to what the court's doing, which is <laughs> just illustrating, maybe just proving my book by <laughs> <laughs> uh, prioritizing the court stuff over the agencies. Chris, I think your short es essays are incredibly important. I think that's a genre that is incredibly important. Um, and then you put them all together and write a book, which is what you're doing. So, um, all right. Last yeah. question, a little bit frivolous. Um, so talk me out of this blog post, okay? Um, I think that the college football – I didn't, I didn't warn you we were going to talk about this, so I apologize. Um, <laughs> the, the college football selection committee, okay? So uh, everyone agrees Washington had to be in because they were they – were, everyone agrees on that. Everybody agrees that uh, Michigan obviously had to be in your, where you're teaching now. Um, and, um, and there's a third undefeated team. I'm sorry. I'm having a senior moment, right? Texas. Right. Uh, no, te right. And Texas had to be in. Okay. So the big debate, I'm going to bring this to the constitutional law very quickly. The big debate was between and among Alabama, FSU, and I think Georgia. I think, I think not, I think Georgia has just a strong claim here. I'm not a Georgia fan I, at all. I've never been a Bulldog fan, but 29 straight victories, number one in the polls for two years, they lose a game by three points. My question to you is this. The committee could, legally, the committee could have said, we're putting in Louisville or we're putting in, you know, Georgia State. We have a football team. They could have done, they have the discretion to do that, but they would have been disbanded next year if they'd done that. There were some things that were, in fact, off the table. When the court decides an affirmative action abortion administrative law case, there are a million things they technically could do, but we know they're not, they're not going to do, because if they did that, the, the, the hell would be just too much for even not even life tenured officials to, to deal with. But among Florida State, uh, Georgia and Alabama, there is no right answer. I am convinced there is no one right answer. There are just arguments and preferences. Is Godfather one better than Godfather two? What we really mean is, is Godfather one, do we like it more than Godfather two? And what they were saying is we like Alabama more than FSU and Georgia, not that Alabama deserves it more because they couldn't possibly prove that. Isn't that con law? <laughs> I mean, where, where there's yeah, almost always I there's almost so. always two choices. There's never infinite choices. But between the two choices, can we really privilege a right answer? Sorry, go ahead. Well, I I, I would just say I I think the 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 second to last the last week of the regular season, I, I just find it so mystified. I mean, I I could, I'm a Ohio State fan. I taught there for 10 years. Uh oh. Can you say that where you're sitting right now? Chris, Chris is sitting in an office at the University of Michigan. Go ahead. No, I know. But like, it, it, it's it's bizarre to me that you can have a team lose on the road by six points because they threw an interception almost into the end zone when this time expired. And they go from number two in the nation to number eight. Agreed. Nothing's changed. They actually kind of proved that they're as good as Michigan because they were on the road. Right, right. Georgia similarly loses by three points at a neutral field after they'd proven all year that they were. I mean, so my mind, like, it should have been Michigan, uh, Washington, Ohio State, and Georgia. 
<laughs> no one else has that list. You're the only person in America with that list. They're the four best teams in the in the league, in my mind. But uh, this is just illustrates why I don't do constitutional law. Um, <laughs> I, I, I I try to focus on things I can actually empirically assess, like how agencies do world making or how they adjudicate. And I feel like con law. And it's nothing new, Eric. By the way, I mean I love the I, I've heard from a number of con law folks in the last couple of years, like. How do I teach con law these days? Everything's just made up. And I'm just like, you know, like nothing has changed. Eric. Chris, that's my, Chris, are you kidding? The defense that... are now just the majority. Like, no, of course. The defense are now just the majority. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Like it's a, it's a field dealing with really hot button issues. They're hard questions. <laughs> and I actually love your college football example. It's hard to decide yes. whether, I mean, Florida State, by the way, had to be out because their quarterback went down. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's. You know, I would not want to watch Florida State play in a game without their quarterback. Right. But like, but putting that aside, like, it's really hard. We have hard questions. The answers are hard. Yes. Uh, and it's hard to separate your answers from your own preferences. And, yes. you know, and, and so while I love my con law colleagues, and I think it's important, obviously, to study and learn con law, the reality is it's a lot harder to come up with a coherent system when the stakes are so high and the questions are so hard. Chris, I, I want to take. I want to say that take, I think I want to say that I'm putting yeah the final touches on a piece uh, for for uh, a symposium piece for Fordham. My view is the left to the extent the left wants court reform, it's doing it all wrong. The problem isn't the justices; the problem is the institution because nothing has changed. I mean, 1801 Congress disbands the Supreme Court for a term. We get to Dred Scott, we get to the civil rights cases, we get to Lochner plus 200, we get to Roosevelt on radio telling the country we got to save the country from the court, we get to Bush versus Gore. You're right, nothing has changed. This is how it's always been. And if we want... But, I mean, but I guess like, I, I don't know. I mean, if you're thinking about the like college football analogy again, yeah. like we've tried so many different ways to figure out who the best team is. <laughs> Remember the BCS formula where the yes. computers played a yes. big role? Yes. Or long ago where you'd have like six undefeated teams, the AP would just vote. Wasn't like Auburn it, undefeated and know, didn't I get mean, to the game? It, Wasn't Auburn undefeated and didn't even get to play in the championship game? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, and so we've had so many, and now we're going to go to 12 teams, which I actually, I hate in a lot of ways, but I, I, I think I like after this year. But your solution is just get rid of football. Uh, and and I, I just don't think that's... Wait, what's my solution? Get rid of what's, what's my solution? Game. Like, is to get rid of like I I think it's to get rid of the court. I'm not sure. No, like, no, no, I, no, 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 no. I like watching the college football playoffs. <laughs> I like. I don't want to get rid of these. Uh, I I think we work with the best we can. <laughs> <laughs> just just, just for the record, Chris. Just for the record. Sorry, we're a little bit late. I apologize. But um, my solution is not get rid of judicial review of the court. My solution is to do exactly what Alexander Hamilton wanted us to do, not because of originalism, because he was a smart guy who was thinking about judicial review under a veil of ignorance, not knowing if his judges or other judges would be on the court. And he said, no, we should have judicial review, but it should be incredibly modest, incredibly humble. I think you agree with this. Yeah. And, it, and it should only be used in cases of irreconcilable variance. That's his phrase. I think we agree on that, right? Mostly? I think that's probably, at least... Uh and I think on the on the base idea of yeah. the basic idea that court should be that the turtle there should be a turtle in a lot of different political branches. Yeah, yeah. I think we're probably on similar lines. Um, okay, and finally, prediction for the national champion is. Oh man, I will be I will be cheering for the school that employs me. Okay. Um, 
<laughs> Good plan. Uh, and I also like Washington a lot. And sadly, I think Bama's going to win. Yeah. <laughs> That's just the reality of it. I, you know, the court always wins. Bama always wins. It's kind of the same stuff. All right. Thank you, Chris. This has been wonderful. It's been great, great catching up, seeing you again and catching up again. Um, this should be out in a couple of days. We're taping this on a Tuesday. Um, I really appreciate you doing this today. Great, Eric. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it was my pleasure.